Kina number nine, Eicha Tifarti Meroshesai Hishlichu. How they've hurled my glory as Tiferes, my glory, my crown from my head. Rav Ephraim Oshri, the author of the Shalos and Shubas Mimamakim. Rav Ephraim Oshri was an up and coming rabbi in Kovna, which is near Slobodka, in June 1941. In June 1941, the Germans rolled in and created what we, know now, we now know as the Kovna Ghetto. Rav Oshri was therefore, as the rabbi of Kovna, his role became to be someone who people turned to with their halachic queries, seeking and searching for guidance about some of the most painful questions that have ever been recorded in the annals of Shilas and Shuvos of the literature of questions and answers. There is something to be said about the genre of Shilas and Shuvas, of Holocaust literature, to think about people going through the depths of hell, who tenaciously were able to hold on to religion to the point that they turned to the rabbi. Whether it was Rafaim Oshri, whether it was the Mivakshe Hashem, the Weissnerov, or so many others who perhaps we never will know of because their writings were lost or they themselves were murdered. The Shrudeyesh of Yechiyach of Weinberg, his tshuva, Shrudeyesh mean the remnant of the fire. And they turned to them and asked them questions. Some questions were almost mundane. Questions that we may have. Mixed up, mixed up something in Kastras. Questions that are so painful about trying to figure out, the Germans gave me a choice. I can only keep one child. How do I choose? There's a spiritual resistance, as Rabbi Brand taught us, to the stories. That as Eliezer Berkowitz writes in one place, there's a holy disbelief to those who lost their faith. But there's also a very holy faith to those who maintain their faith. And part of the story of the Holocaust, part of the story of those who went through what they went through, is the spiritual resistance. In fact, a number of years ago, an institution opened up in Israel, parallel to Yad Vashem, taking the name from the same verse in that Pasuk called Shem Olam. Shem Olam is an institute, an institute dedicated to preserving the religious memory and the religious stories of the Holocaust. The resistance of Jews who didn't go like sheep to a slaughter. If, a number of years ago, when the chief rabbinate wrote the Kelmale, the Kelmale for, the, for those who went through the Shoah, they, they borrowed a term that we use in our liturgy, which comes from Tanakh, that the Jews went like sheep to slaughter. Like sheep to slaughter. And there was a tremendous uproar, including Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, who said, we need to remove this from our liturgy. Because yes, they may have walked on the trains and walked into the gas chambers, and to someone on the outside, it looks like sheep to slaughter. But there were anything but that. The heroism of Jews who died al-Kiddush Hashem, who said Kaddish, for themselves, on the trains to Auschwitz. The heroism of the people who somehow managed to keep and maintain their humanity in a place that was devoid of humanity. That's not sheep to slaughter. That's heroism. That's some of the greatest acts of Kiddush Hashem that ever existed. When you look through the Shalos and Shubas Mimamakim, Rav Oshri recorded his responsa on scraps of paper. He then took those responsa and buried them in a jug, 
somewhere in the Kovna ghetto. He survived the war, and after the war, he came out and went searching for this jug. He found them, he found it, he opened it up, and he then began to edit it. And over the course of almost 15 years, until 1959, he was editing these tshuvas, adding sources the way a traditional tshuva has, and he published volume one in 1959. Part of the way he survived the war, by the way, was the Germans made him a librarian. They recognized he was a rabbi who had a great knowledge of Jewish literature. And the Germans planned on making some sort of exhibit after the war on the artifacts of the extinct Jewish race. Now, there's a little bit of contention among scholars what exactly the purpose of this exhibit would be. I think many of us may be familiar with the reason that the Germans collected and brought all the Jewish artifacts to Prague and filmed so meticulously and recorded so meticulously everything they did. It was not just because they were Yekis, but because they planned on making a museum of the extinct human race. Other scholars argue that wasn't the point of it, but rather they made an institute. And the purpose of that institute was to essentially shore up and create some sort of pseudoscience and rationale to vindicate their total immoral and irrational desire to eliminate and perpetuate genocide on the Jewish race. A, a, the author, I uh, forgot his first name, Rydell, he wrote a book called The Book Thieves, The Looting of European Libraries and the race to return a literary inheritance, talks about the dilemma of many of these Jewish librarians, like Rav Oshri, who understood that through what they were doing, they were preserving Jewish legacy. It was only because of them that these books would be preserved, yet at the same time, they were aiding the Nazis in their pseudoscience. They were aiding the Nazis in their quest to preserve, to prove and justify the Holocaust. But that's what he did. Rav Oshri does this, works in this library, he survives the war. He takes these scraps of papers. He brings it to New York. He becomes a rabbi in New York in the base Medrash HaGadol in New York City. And he writes down these tshuvas. His introduction to tshuva volume number one, he has a haunting, haunting introduction where he talks about why he calls it Mimamakim, from out of the depths. These tshuvas are literally from out of the depths of hell, from out of the depths of the shadow of death. I don't want to read today from that introduction. We can save that for some other time. I want to read from the introduction to his third volume. Now, I wasn't able to look up when this volume was published, but something tells me that this was the beginning of Holocaust denial, beginning of people starting to talk about the need to forget the Holocaust. And he writes something so powerful. This is in his introduction to volume three. Parsha Zohar Nemar. We're familiar with the command once a year before Purim, before we read about Haman's desire and quest to annihilate the Jewish people, to perpetuate his Holocaust in the Jewish people. We read about Zohar Sasher Asalacha Amalek. Remember what Amalek did to us. Remember what Amalek did to us when we were on the way. And then, when God restores you and God takes care of you, you go on to say, we should not forget. Two commands, says Ravoshri, we are commanded in this parsha to always always to never forget, if you will, to bear witness, to never forget, as Eli Wiesel so often wrote, never forget what, God, what Amalek did, and also to, to, excuse me, to remember what he, they did and to never forget. Two commands. One's a positive command, to, the command is to remember, and the negative command is not to forget. Both of them get wrapped up in the, why we do it once a year. Once a year we remember, and once a year ensures we don't forget. And he goes, I have a problem with this. 
Why would the Torah command us both to remember and not forget? It says, first of all, this makes no sense. It seems so obvious. That when the Torah commands us, remember what Amalek did to us. But the Torah is basically ensuring we'll never forget. He goes, but I don't get it. Why does the Torah need to command us to remember? Is it even possible to forget these days? And you see what he's doing, he's transporting. The story of Amalek attacking the Jewish people as we left Egypt to the story of the Holocaust. Because is it really possible to forget what we went through? These days of fear, of dread, of murder, of genocide. Days of the camps, of the ghettos. Days of flames and fire. The days when thousands and thousands, millions were murdered. Beautiful, pure people were murdered. How is it possible we're going to forget the death camps? Auschwitz, Treblinka, Medanik, the transports. He goes on to say the people, the, the killing squads the, in Babi Yar and elsewhere. Is it really possible to forget this land of Europe? To forget the land where our Jewish people were strangled, were murdered, our beautiful brothers and sisters? He writes very poetically, and also his tshuvas are very poetically as well. Are very poetic as well. He says the Torah was certain. The Torah knew we would never forget. What Amalek did, he changed it. What Amalek did to us. It's impossible to forget the fear and everything the Germans did to us. Ulam, he says. The Torah adds on a second half. The Torah says, but then when God is good to you, when God, when God it's, when, when, when he says, the Torah knows that when things calm down, when things get better, and every remnant of this fire, the people who emerged from the death camps, who came out of the fire, What's going to happen, he says. The people will emerge, and maybe shells of the former selves, but they're going to go on, and they're going to try to rebuild their lives. And of course, the, even the rebuilt life comes with the skeletons, and sometimes more than just skeletons of the previous life. There's a book written a number of years ago, it wasn't the greatest book, by Tom Segev, called The Seventh Million. And I want to borrow that term to talk about, to mention that while six million may have physically been killed, there was that seven million who emerged, but never emerged victorious. That never emerged, maybe their bodies emerged, but they never emerged healthy. There's a reason why when we talk about Holocaust survivors, we talk about those who somehow managed to write books, who managed to rebuild their lives, to accumulate great wealth, to build families. But there's that seventh million who didn't. When you look at the statistics of poverty and those living beneath the level of poverty in Israel, it's stunning 
Even now, when there are only a couple hundred survivors, hundred thousand survivors left, it's stunning to see how many survivors spent the rest of their lives living beneath the poverty line, living with indignity, never really emerging. And even those who did emerge, I once spoke to someone who grew up in Beverly Hills from a very wealthy family, son of survivors, and he said to me that my parents and all of their friends, they may have looked successful from the outside observer, built massive companies, but they were not people. All they knew how to do after emerging from the camps was work, and that's what they did. They weren't fathers, they weren't brothers, they weren't husbands, they weren't wives. They were destroyed people. They were a seventh million. But you know what, says Ravoshri, so many did emerge. And at least the outsider looked like they rebuilt their lives, and some did manage to rebuild their lives, even living with the skeletons, even living with the nightmares, and living with the fact that they lost everything. Says Ravoshri goes on to say, Him yivnu lahem batim chadashim, v'yikim mishpachas chadashos. They're going to build new homes. They built up new families even after they lost their first families. Many of them were successful building, having a parnasa, some in astronomical ways, some just as normal citizens. They succeeded in seeing blessing from the work of their hands. And somehow they emerged, were able to enjoy the fruits of their labors in their new land and to even hand on and give over to their children. So many of them even went on and you look at just the names and the buildings and Elizabeth and Livingston. They went on and not only were they successful for themselves, but they were able to give over and build up Jewish life in their new lands. How much of our Jewish life is built up because of these survivors? Oz, he goes on to say, you know what's going to happen? The Torah knows the nature of man. Those who survived. They're going to strive, so many of them, to do whatever they can to forget about those evil days, to forget about what they went through. They're going to forget what happened two decades ago. The animals that descended upon them. All of them are going to say to themselves, What is the worth in remembering what we went through? Why remember it? the murderous Nazis, the murderous Germans during the years of war. And they'll go on to say even, and they'll go on to say, in a way of trying to forget what happened, he said. It's a new world. A world, uh, it's a new world. Look, even in Germany. The Germans who brought this destruction and desolation to the world. It's a new government there. There's democracy. People have choices. There's freedoms there. They're giving money to Israel. They're giving cabs to Israel. All is good and well. It's a new, it's a new government. All is good and well. Oz, 
It's never going to happen again. How can it happen in a democracy? It's a new country. It's new rulers. They care for the Jewish people. They're sending money to all the survivors. They're getting their money. They know what happened. They know their history. Life is good. We can forget what happened. We can forgive the Germans for what happened. All is good and well. In Cain says, Rav Oshri, this is what's going to cleanse the hands of the Germans. Their clothing that's sullied from the pure, clean blood. And we're going to say, if the Germans, if their hands are clean, they're supporting the Jewish institutions now. Perhaps now we can know exactly what's going on and the debate that's raging. Menachem Begin being one of the opponents about taking the stipends and the reparations from the Germans. About saying it's okay, it's a new country now. We could do business with them. We know what's happening. And he's saying, we're too, are then going to say, if they're a new country, we can forget as well. We can forget what happened. And he goes on to say, and that's what's happening here. When God is good to you, when God allows you to rebuild, what's going to happen? He goes on to say, you know what's going to happen? We're going to say we want to forget as well. We're going to say that was history. That was the past. What relevance is it to our life? Why remember it? Why remember what they went through? Why remember the world that was? It's a new country now. We've rebuilt our lives. Therefore, the Torah says, Lo tishkach. Don't forget. As he opened up and says, How can you forget this? He says, It's human nature to want to forget it. So the Torah has to say, Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Don't forget the years of rage. Don't forget everything they did to us. It's so important to always remember, and especially for us, as we're entering into these last few years, when we're not going to have anyone who's around who, to bear witness to the destruction and desolation, decimation of European Jewry. It's on us. It's on us to remember. It's on us to perpetuate what was lost and to realize what we do lose if we forget. What we do lose if we no longer have yiskar for those in the, in the world that was lost. And that's his introduction to Shut Mimamakim. The Shalas and Shuvah is dealing with this great time in Jewish history, this terrible time in Jewish history. I want to read two, two introductions to two, 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 two Shilas, two questions he got with you to just to give a sense of what he was dealing with. The first tshuva comes from Chelek Aleph, Simen Chavav 26. And again, I want to read his words because he writes so poetically about what's happening. And it gives you a sense again of what's happening in Germany. So this tshuva came at the end, looks like towards the end of the war when it was either the death marches or the Jews were being forced to march into, into forced labor. Midarkas Shaharotzchem, he writes, the way of the murderers. Yimach Shemom, Hayulahochiles, Hayyudim, Shayinispashim, Avoda Hakfia. They forced the Jewish people into heavy backbreaking labor. Kiishon Laila, in the darkness of night, Lifnelos Ashachar, before daybreak. They would come and wake up the Jews, Avoda Hakfia, to the forced labor. It's amazing to think about this. It's, these Jewish people turn to Rav Oshri and they say to him, we are being woken up 
prior to dawn. So we can't put on tefillin because it's not daybreak yet. Like, that's what they're thinking about? Putting on tefillin when they're about to be woken up, sent to backbaking labor, beaten, some of them aren't going to return, but they're like, oh, Rabbi, we have to put on tefillin. It makes you wonder, like, do we care that much about tefillin? That will, this is a question we're going to ask. And he says as follows, they worked all day, we worked heavy, avodas parach, borrowing a phrase from Exodus, the Jewish people working avodas parach, backpicking labor, until it was nighttime again. So he says, we didn't have time to put on tefillin. But that's not the question. The question, it could have been enough if it was just, Rabbi, what do we do? Are we allowed to put tefillin on at night? Is tefillin is night time for tefillin? Is tefillin not a night time for tefillin? What's going on here? Ready for the question? There were people among these back among this backbreaking labor, there were people. who had the courage to put on tefillin when? It wasn't that they were going from point A to point B, it was a couple feet. They were walking miles, starting at night, walking through the daybreak to get to wherever they were going, whether it was fortifying Nazi positions, working in the fields, whatever it was. So some people said, you know what? So they somehow smuggled tefillin with them. They would put the tefillin on as they were marching. It wasn't just two Jews marching. It was enough Jews that they were able to put tefillin on indiscreetly. They were able to put tefillin and able to be, to, to do it in a way that no one realized. They were putting on tefillin. So that's what they would do. They would walk and put on tefillin really quickly and pass to the next guy, pass to the next guy. Ula, what happened? Karach ha-mikrash ha-gamarin tosu ez-echad me-avodim tefillin. One day, as indiscreet as the person was trying to be, the Nazis realized someone was wearing tefillin. And they stopped the march. They yanked him out from among the people. And what did they do? They beat him and mistreated him with all sorts of inuyim, all sorts of afflictions. And it wasn't enough that they were beating him with clubs. What else did they do? They ripped off his tefillin in the place on his left bicep where he put his tefillin. They pulled out a knife and they made they carved into his flesh a cross. So that every time in the rest of his life they said you will never be able to put on tefillin without pulling up your sleeve and revealing to everyone and to yourself a crucifix on your arm. The barbarism, the animalism here. To see this, this, this image, this disgusting image, it's a little blurry here, to see what we carved into your flesh. So what's the question? The question is, the guy turns to Rav Oshri and says, how am I going to put on tefillin again? Can I put a bandage on my arm so that everyone just thinks I got injured there and I don't have to see this cross? Or as we know, there's a concept of chatzitza, of imposition, that the tefillin have to go al on our flesh. And therefore, can I not put on tefillin ever again? Or can I switch, have to switch my arm? Because how can I put tefillin on a cross? But how can I put tefillin on a bandage, which is preventing and blocking the tefillin from being laying directly on the skin of my arm? That's the question. The person had the courage to ask of Oshri during the war. It makes us pause to recognize this idea of spiritual resistance, this idea of what it means to really hold on, to really hold on to our religion, to our Mesorah. 
In Kinnah number 9, it opens up and says, Eicha tefarti meroshasai. How you've hurled my glorious crown from my head. Perhaps the glory we're talking about here is not just the fact that Beis Amigdash was destroyed, the glory of that, but it's the glory and the splendor of our people, of the Jewish people who had the courage in the face of unimaginable suffering and pain to summon up somehow deep within them a desire to still serve God. A desire, even if it wasn't to serve God for some of them, because they lost that a desire to go on, to keep on living, to keep on loving, to just be human again. That desire, how did they do that? That's a Tiferes. And for every survivor that was able to do that, there were so many who asked these questions, this Tiferes, this glory, that were hurled onto the floor, as the Kinnah describes, that were destroyed. Destruction of a Tiferes of the Jewish people. And that itself is a tragedy. It's not about the Mishkan. It's about the people, our brothers, our beloved brothers and sisters, who have been destroyed. The other tshuva I want to look at, Shela number Yud, it's this, this comes in volume 5. And again, if you read his words, it's gripping. We were in the Valley of Tears. This is written in the Kovna Ghetto, at a point in which they realized that the days were limited. At a certain point, many of them realized that this wasn't temporary. When they said they were taking these Jews to the east to work, they realized that meant that was trained directly to Auschwitz, to the crematoriums. And he says, at this point, we're in the Eimekabach, in the Valley of Tears. And we have recognized, and we have the, the realization that it has hit us. Maybe it was Sheves. That we're not going to survive, or most of us are not going to survive. Haisa, we realized that even those who did want, who were going to survive, we're going to be put through the camps. We saw the intention of the Germans was to eradicate and erase that Selim Elohim, the divine spark, the humanity from us. Primal Levi, one of the most famous survivors, writes in his book, If This Is Man. His book, If This Is Man, he writes that more and worse than the crime against our bodies whether it was the subjugation, the enslavement, the, beat, the beatings, or even the murder. Worse than all that, he says, was the dehumanization of us. They turned us into animals. And he writes in stark detail how man became beasts. How ma- good men, good Jews, who cared for one another, who lived by the behalf of the Reicha Kamocha, when they were starved and beaten, turned into animals, only looking after themselves. In fact, Rabbi Sachs writes, based off this primal levy, Rabbi Sachs records how primal levy said that it wasn't until after the war, three days after the war, when he found himself standing around a fire cooking potatoes. And he realized, how did this fire come about? The war was over. Jews had nowhere to go, so they were staying in the camps, which is like a crazy concept. You were subject, you're in jail, but there's nowhere to go. Your homes are destroyed, your towns are destroyed. Where are you going to go? We know even though some Jews did go back and were murdered by the occupants of their former homes. So they're in the camps, and one night, about three days after liberation, one of his friends broke into one of the store shelters and found potatoes. Another friend broke into the kitchen, and with his other friend, they grabbed a cast iron pot, and they brought it out. He describes how he was seeing stars. He was so hungry, so thirsty and famished, he couldn't carry it. Someone else found wood. They made a fire, and they stood around eating potatoes. In a moment, he had a realization that this is the first time 
his humanity is returning. Because the first time in three or four years, the people got together as a group to care for one another, to look after one another, and to collaborate with one another. Worse than what they perpetuated against our bodies, he writes. Worse than what they, worse than what they did to us, was they made us not human. Says of Oshery, we saw the Germans wanted to remove that Salem looking from us, to remove us from the world, to make us into animals, so they can tell the world it's okay. They were shafech damim yinaka, that we spilled the pure blood, the clean blood of the Jewish people. Why? We're fine, we're good. There's nothing wrong. They're cockroaches, they're animals. So what did they do? They gathered us up into this ghetto where it was dark, where we were treated, without, we didn't have food, and they said, this is where we're putting, we're, we're, we're segregating those who are subhuman. And it's okay if we maltreat them. So what do you think happened to the Jewish people? All those poor Jewish souls who are now sitting in this ghetto, they cannot leave it. They're starving, they're famished. There are every day, Jews are being rounded up and sent to their deaths. And the Jews realize it. And the Jews realize they're being treated as subhuman, as animals. A, a spirit of yiyush, of, of a loss of hope, of a feeling of despair and despondency came upon all of us there. When there's no hope, when there's no future, it wasn't that they knew in 1945 it would all be over. They looked at it and said, we're here forever. Despondency, despair, a loss of hope. Says of Oshri, Lazos, at that moment, I said upon myself, I accepted upon myself, I made a Kabbalah, that I was going to help those around me. I was going to strengthen the spirit of the brokenness of those who are broken, of those who have lost all hope. And those of broken spirit and body. I was going to renew and rejuvenate at least the spirit of bitachon, of trust that God, the God of the Jewish people, is sitting there and is angry. God knows and God's listening and is watching every moment and action of our enemies. And he's going to one day, going to remove the destruction from, the, from this earth. He's going to see us, and he's going to bring chesed back to us. He's not going to push off indefinitely our salvation. So says of Oshri, I made this Kabbalah when I saw the despondency, the yish of the Jewish people, that I was going to instill within them and reinvigorate them with the spirit of hope. That all is not lost, that one day, if we won't emerge from this, the Jewish people will emerge from this. And this is similar to the Eish Kodesh, the Pizetz, the Rebbe, in his drushas, the Eish Kodesh, of the Holy Fire, who did this as well, gave drushas and gave lectures, telling the Jewish people that if we don't emerge from this, the Jewish people will emerge, that we can believe with 100% certainty we will go on. So what did he do? What did Rav Oshri do? Arag Tzenilazos, Tiferes Bachrim. He says, I arranged for what he calls and dubs the Tiferes Bachram, the glorious Bachram, the glorious boys. Jewish people are glorious. And I brought these beautiful children together, old and young, 
And I said to them, we're going to learn Torah together. We're going to discuss the holy and pure Torah of God together. My intention was that through gathering these Jewish boys, these glorious boys together, I will plant within them eternal life. To place in their hearts love, and fear. The last is Ritzon the love and fear that one needs to serve God with a whole heart. Just two things. One is, again, he's borrowing phrases from Tanakh, from liturgy. But his point was, he said, I'm going to give them, and I'm going to give them an ability to latch on to eternity, to have some hope. And here's this question now, after the whole introduction. Among these Tiferes Bachrim, these glorious Bachrim, Halalu, Hatzin, Nair, Echad, Mishpachas, Shvarshviski, Shvarshviski, I don't know how to read that name. A boy from this, the family of Shvarshviski comes up to me one day and he says to me, and he says to me with purity that he's working so hard to learn Torah. However, he knows he, as a 12 year old he has not come to bar mitzvah, he's not fully obligated in mitzvahs. The Cholzos, he says, even though I'm not fully obligated in mitzvahs, Rav Oshri says this boy had a, a, a sense of awe and reverence and punctiliousness in the way he kept mitzvos like an elder, an older person. He was so careful about all mitzvos like someone who was a, a full-fledged adult. He really cared. He wasn't you know, a teenager who was like, I don't care. No, he cared. This beautiful, dear boy turned to me and said, Rebbe, can I put on tefillin, even though I'm not 13 yet, even though I'm not obligated in mitzvos? Because who knows what tomorrow is going to bring? The evil, wicked Germans, whose hands we are placed into. Because we know the, Jewish, the Germans particularly delighted and strove to kill as many of the Jewish future as possible. The Jewish children are our future. And the Germans knew that. That's why they killed so many of them. And therefore, says this boy, who knows what tomorrow is going to bring? Rebbe, I don't know if I'm going to make it to 13. And if that's true, I don't know. Can I ever fulfill the mitzvah of putting on tefillin? Because who knows when I'm going to, the decree is going to come down, I'm going to have to join the transport, the kinder transport. These wicked and evil and cursed Germans, they're going to bring us to that place. Says this little boy, I want to still put on tefillin. As long as I'm alive, I want to have the merit to put on tefillin. Even though I'm not 13. Can you imagine that question? Can you imagine the courage of that boy to ask that question? And can you imagine the courage of the rabbi to listen and have to deal with that question? A little boy saying, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't know if I'll survive, but I still want to put on filling. And the rabbi having to say to him and give him an answer to this. When I heard from this delightful boy, this beautiful boy, Zed, he goes, I began to cry. 
And I said to myself, He quoted from the Kinnos we're going to read today. Who gives my head enough water to cry the tears? To bawl day and night over the destruction of my people. This is the question he was asked by a little boy. And he goes on for a few pages to then go give a classic tshuva. He's quoting the Gemara and Sukkah about the, what it means to have to, to have to, of chinuch, how we give little children, as we learned to Mishnah Yomi, the ability to shake the lulav. And he quotes how the Torah quotes it, and he quotes how the Dark Moshe quotes it. He goes how the Mugan Avram quotes it. Latching on to history, the Mesorah. And ultimately, he tells the boy he can't put on tefillin. And he goes, after going through it's three or four pages here of describing what's allowed, what's not allowed afterwards, he goes, I gave the boy halach lemaisa and said, yes, you can put on tefillin, even though you're just a little boy. And that's how the tshuva should end. And any classic tshuva would end and maybe would say, you know, signed, you know, Ephraim Hakatan, the little Ephraim, whoever people like to sign tshuvas, signed Moshe Feinstein, signed Avadi Yosef. That's how the tshuvas are normally signed. But he adds an addendum. V'achein, he said, when the boy came to ask me this, this pure boy came to ask me, I gave him this. I saw how much he wanted to because he recognized because he realized he might not live to 13. And so, with deep pain, I told him he could do so. And then he writes as follows, and among the pain and bitterness, on the third of Nisan in Tafshin Dalid, when the evil Germans, the cursed Germans, should our memories be erased. Have you a kinder oxen? They began the child transport. They take this little 12 year old boy and brought him to be killed. On this I cry. My eyes are filled with water. Because so far is these menachim, this comfort from me, that this happened to me. And he ends off, I, I, I threw, the word of Hippalta, we find it with Chana. Chana threw, she flung her prayers to, to God. It's actually a, it's almost a chutzpah. When someone turns to God and screams at God and says, God, you owe me this. Fanchana screamed to God, God, you owe me this. He used the same lesson, God. He said, God, you owe, at least, the very least, you owe the Jewish people. The following. That all the evil of these Germans will come before you. God, you will essentially erase this and destroy this and give the Germans what they deserve. This is Tiferes. This is glory. The ability to somehow go on, whether it's spiritually or physically. And what we're mourning now, the loss of, there are those who went on and wrote Shuvah's Mimamakim, but for every Shilas and Shuvah Mimamakim, as tragic and as harrowing as it is, there are so many more speeches and drushes, lectures, questions and answers, books that will never be published, no one will ever know about, because they're destroyed. There are so many Jews who no one's going to ever say Kaddish for, 
who lived heroically and died even more heroically. Not like sheep to a slaughter, but died saying Kaddish for themselves. They were never going to know about. And that's a Tiferis. They were glory. There's something glorious about the Jewish people. I saw yesterday someone posted on their WhatsApp status that they said if the purpose and the reason for the destruction of the temple was sinas chinam, baseless hatred, so we have to all embrace avas chinam, baseless love. Rav Berkovitz, one of the rabbis in Yerushalayim, said, we don't need avas chinam, baseless love. He said, because there are so many reasons to love the Jewish people. There are so many reasons to love our brothers and sisters. There's no such thing as baseless love. The reasons are there. There's a tiferis, there's a glory in the Jewish people. And today we're mourning in this kinah the glory that will never see the day of light, the glory that was lost when it was extinguished, when these little 11-year-old boys and 12-year-old boys, the tiferis bachrim, were murdered, even though they resisted spiritually and they resisted heroically. Kinah number nine, Eicha Tifarti Merosheseh.